0: If you will, turn back in your Bibles, or whatever copy of God's word you have, we will be looking at, I need our map too, if you can pull our map up so we can get a visual of where we are in our excursion with the children of Israel making their way to God's house, as is stated very clearly in the triumphant song that Moses and his sister um, celebrated when they came through the Red Sea. We are looking at uh, what I call the 10th encampment of the journey of the children of Israel. The 10th encampment can be clearly seen in, uh, in the book of Numbers 33, verse 17, in your own time. And the number 10 is significant with God. It should be significant with us too. Expand that, if you will, so we can see that. And I want to show you just where we are on our map. That's too too broad. I need to get all the way down to the south here, right here in this area. We're good. Right here. So we have come down. We have been sitting at Rafadim. This is an area of the desert. Obviously, we are deeply south up against the Gulf of uh, the uh, Araqa um, lands, as well as the Red Sea, where we crossed way up here, several weeks back, and we are at the 10th encampment. A lot of things happened back here, if you recall, but here is where God now is going to settle his relationship with his people right there. This is where Mount Horeb is. This is where God met Moses the first time. And this is where they're meeting again, and there are a number of things that we want to deal with before they make their ascent up to the promised land. Whenever you're following God, you are ascending. You are not descending. God is taking you up. He's taking you higher. He's bringing you into that domain where he exists and he dwells. So Mount Sinai, Mount Horeb is where we are. And the 10th encampment, as I stated before, is a place of definitive appointment for the people of God. It is a point and place of definitive appointment. What do I mean by that? This is where the children of Israel, who at that time were Hebrews, obtained their identity. This is where their identity was formally and contractually established. This is the place where Yahweh, Jehovah, speaks for himself, to the children of Israel for the first time. Every time prior to this event, the children of Israel never heard God's voice. The only voice they ever heard was Moses. Because if you follow what we've been learning about Moses, Moses is a mediator type. Moses goes up to God. Receives the word from God and brings it down from God to give it to his people. That's what mediation is. And in that sense, Moses is a great type of the one who came down and went back up and brought down for us a more glorious law in the person of Christ, as you would know. The people of God have never heard the voice of God until we are here in our text. And I want to make sure you understand that as well. Because the voice of God is essentially intolerable to hear. So I had my order to stop because I wanted to make sure you captured what I will teach you here in a moment very clearly. All of us are only hearing from God if we do through a mediator. All of us are only hearing from God if we do through a mediator. So when you hear people say, I heard the voice of God, just go, okay, okay. I can tell you your whole physiology will change if you actually hear the voice of God. And you don't have to persuade us because we will know. What you're hearing is your own conscious echoing what culture has granted accessibility to all of us, whether it's uh, in your subconscious, you're hearing the word of God because it's been quoted or preached or taught somewhere else. This is how your cranium obtains information. And then your conscious knows how to reflect that back to you as it deals with your soul and it deals with your issues. But you're not hearing God in a direct way. You're only hearing a reflection of the voice of God. You know that because most of the time when you hear God in your cranium, you hear it through the voice of someone you know. Like most people hear God in this church through my voice. That'll come home in a minute. Because you hear through mediators. Like children hear through their parents' voice. You hear through authorities. Did you hear what I just stated? So your brain only facilitates mediators, multiple of them. And so when the children of Israel were brought to this very poignant, particular event that we're dealing with here, something new is happening. This is where... The Lord Jesus is going to meet them for himself for the first time. And this is going to be something of importance for us to grapple with. So again, the title of our message is Arise, Move, and Go. We are on our 10th encampment. That is what um, Numbers 33, verse 17 will tell us. Moving from Raphaim, we have come now to the wilderness of Sinai. Here... God is going to confirm his covenant with his people to make them not only his people, but his bride. Jehovah now will consummate a marriage covenant with Israel. This is what he said over and over through his prophets Isaiah and Jeremiah. Return unto me, return unto me, I am married to you. So imagine what's taking place here is a marital covenant. We've been talking about that for three weeks, have we not? And so now what's happening is God is drawing even nearer to Israel to give the whole nation a more vivid experience of who God is so that they don't have to merely live with saying we heard it from Moses because, you know, they already had a problem with Moses a few times, did they not? This time God is saying, Moses, don't worry about it. They'll hear from me. And I want to make sure you guys capture that because again, this is a very poignant portion of scripture. There are three major points we want to deal with briefly. One is you are a royal priesthood. Secondly, I am the Lord your God. Thirdly, these are the 10 words of the covenant. So here's what I did. I'm showing you that contextually, God tells Israel who they are. Secondly, God tells Israel who he is. Then he tells Israel what they are to do. I'm going to say it again. The way God opens up, he tells Israel who they are. Then he tells them who he is. Then he tells them that medium by which that relationship is to reciprocate those 10 words. Y'all got that? Those 10 words. And I love this because you know what? You really can't know who you are until God tells you who you are. Everybody else is lying to you, including you. See, the thing formed must go to the one that formed it to get the definition of what it is. You can never define yourself when somebody else formed you. You got to go to the artificer. You got to go to the master builder and say, who am I? And the master builder will tell you who you are. This is where we are today, are we not? When you get dislodged from God, you can become anything in your own brain. And so it's important for us to learn who we are. What a dignified moment this is. Because Israel, very much like us, they were acting a fool for these 10 journeys, weren't they? Just acting a straight fool. And God says, okay, now it's time, Moses. I need you to scoot over. I'm going to talk to him for a minute. I really want you to get that. I really want you to get that because there are times in your life and mine after we have lived a long time um, hearing God secondarily or tertiarily through others and others mean something. As I said, as a child, Children get a formation and a kind of ideology of God through their parents, as ought to be the case. As flawed as that may be, that's where they are grappling with morals and ethics. They are grappling with identity and purpose. They're grappling with their relationship to the society through their parents. That's why the parents are to train them up in the fear and the nurture of the Lord. So they hear the voice of the parent until they begin to break the umbilical cord. And we already know that even though you break the umbilical card, depending how, depending on how significant the relationship was between you and your parents, you may always hear your parents' voice until you die because mother and father become a model of God to us. OK, so very important. If you've got good parents that told you the truth it's a good likelihood that truth is never going to leave you in terms of their voice. Now, you may succumb to other voices, submit to them, walk in them, uh, obtain other gods, false gods, but they will be in constant internal conflict with the God who showed up to you in your parents. This is why the promise given to us as parents is if you train them up in the right way, be the vocal cords for my word so that that word goes in them. When they depart, my word won't depart. It'll still hold on to them. And if God is good, start towing them back into the kingdom of God. This is the promise we have. This is why we tell our children the truth as it is in Christ And so God here has laid out in this encounter on this day, the fact of who they are, the facts of who he is, and the facts of how they are to respond to him. We call these the 10 words of God. And I'm going to make that plain when we get there. Under point number one, you are a royal priesthood. That's who you are. See, the conversation we're dealing with didn't start in chapter 20. It started in chapter 19. Listen to it over in chapter 19, verse four, where God speaks to Moses. Are you there? Look at verse three. And Moses went up unto who? See, that's what I meant. Y'all caught me? That's what I meant. See, you're going to see if you read chapter 19 and 20 very carefully, Moses is going up and coming down. He's going up and coming down. He's going up and coming down. Didn't we learn in chapter 18 that the people came to Moses and Moses took what the people said up to God. He got instructions from God and he came back down to tell the people what God said. Right. So Moses will go up and down, up and down, up and down the elevator of revelation, the elevator of epiphany, the elevator of consecration, the elevator of ascent into fellowship with God so he can get God's mind to give to the people. And that happens with true believers every time we authentically pray. This is why you see the metaphor of a heaven opening up and men and women in the Bible being, as it were, ascending into the presence of God to hear from God. That is a motif of ascension through prayer and fellowship with God. Whenever you and I our fellowshipping with God authentically, we are in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. This is why Christ told them in John chapter, uh, chapter three, hereafter you shall see the angels ascending and descending, ascending and descending on the Son of Man. And those angels are every believer in Christ. because we get our instructions from heaven, we are seated in heavenly places. We are dispatched to this world to let men and women know what heaven thinks. Is that right? That's why we pray our father who art in heaven, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Right. We bring it down in our fellowship with God and we let men know what the will of God is. Did that come home? Here's what Moses did when he went up. Moses went up unto God and the Lord God called him out of the what? That's Mount Horeb saying, thus shalt thou say to the house of Jacob and tell the children of Israel. So you guys see the mechanism, right? Moses is called out. God tells Moses, tell the children of Israel. God has not yet spoken to them. He's speaking through Moses. Here's what he says to tell them. You have seen, I'm at verse four. You have seen what I did unto the Egyptians and how I bear you on eagles' wings and brought you unto myself. Capture it. Because that verse encompasses the whole year of God showing up in Egypt through Moses and Aaron and destroying Pharaoh and his whole family and calling Israel out through the Red Sea into the wilderness unto this day. Did y'all get that? Now notice what God says. Now you have seen not you have heard. You have seen how the Lord God came in and destroyed your former master and your former gods. So God is reminding them of his works. You're going to hear the echo of it in a moment. If you don't believe me for my word's sake, believe me for my work's sake. You're going to hear it in a moment. So what God will often do before he speaks clearly to you and me, he will come in providence and bust up everything in your life. He loves you enough to bring you into crisis so that you can call on him. That's what God did. Notice again, you have seen what I did. That means God is bearing record that Israel saw God's hand. You're privileged when you see God busted up for you. You know God did it. See, God is getting ready to set them up to speak to them. What he's letting them know is the God that is about to speak to you. I'm the one that did all that. And and by the way, you're here this day right now because I decreed that you would be here this day right now. Listen carefully. You are in front of the mount of God. And you got there by a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. And by a God who provided for you, who protected you and cared for you like a husband does a wife when you got a good one. And the point is, is when you and the point is, is that God is a husband to this woman. And she needs to know that she's now being brought to the altar, brought to the altar to close the deal with Jehovah to close the deal so that next day they're walking to Jehovah's house. Y'all keeping up with me? We're in the 10th encampment. We got 32 more encampments to go. We got to walk through the trouble of a couple making their way to a homestead and losing their way from time to time. We got a few more encampments to do. Some of us have been there, have we not? Notice what it says in verse 5. Watch it. Exodus 19, 5. So not only has God done this sovereignly and his providence brought us to him. Now, therefore, if you will obey my voice indeed, you see that second clause there? If you will obey my voice indeed, I need need you to get this because I'm going to fix an error that is prevalent in our world and it's prevalent in the church. That is called a conditional clause. Did y'all see that? Write it down, mark it, because I want to help you overcome the delusion of cognitive dissonance because we buy into notions and into words and into propositions that do not square when you land them on scripture carefully. Am I making some sense? Here, God immediately called Israel into a conditional status if you will obey my voice and keep my what? And see, the covenant has not been revealed yet we're in chapter 19. It gets revealed in 20. Y'all keeping up? But this is what we call a prophetic future. God will often speak of things that are not as if they are because they are about to be revealed. Only God can do that. The rest of us are guesstimating, okay? "Then Then you shall be a peculiar treasure unto me above all people, for all the earth is what? I love that. God says here, If you obey me, I will actually make you to be a peculiar treasure unto me. Now, what that means, if you don't know, is God will beautify you in such a way. Remember, we talked about communication leading to collaboration, to cooperation, and then cultivation. Y'all remember that? God is saying, I will cultivate you and I will beautify you in such a way is that when the world looks on you, they'll know you have a magnificent God. For the splendor and the beauty and the fullness and the sufficiency with which God will drape you with all that He is. The people of God are called to be beautiful in the world. That's the term, beautiful. A peculiar treasure is like no other treasure. It is rare, it is expensive, it is exquisite, it is unique, and it's designed to compel people to notice. And when they notice, they should elicit from what they see that this person, these people are cared for. Did that come home? Are cared for. Now, again, I love God for this. I don't want to be too long on this point, but when he brought them out of Egypt, he meant business, didn't he? He said, go to your neighbors because they're going to be glad to give you all of the gold and silver they have. The way I'm going to wreck their place, they're going to be glad. When their economy is all tore up, they're going to invest in you so they can survive. They got so much gold, so much silver, so many precious stones. And a whole bunch of them said, can we go with you? Because I think I heard the same voice you did. Arise, move and go. And many of the Egyptians took off with the Jews, did they not? That's a good idea. They were just hoping that God was not a respecter of persons. And he's not. As Torah will teach us, all who call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. That's what Torah will teach. But I got stuff to teach you because there's some things that you you just need to to know here. Give give me one more verse. This will help us. Exodus 19, 6. And you shall be unto me a kingdom of what? First and foremost, unto God, nobody else. Now, I want you to get that. This. this is called mediation. You as a people will be unto me a priest. That means you stand between me and the people. Not only the cultic people of your community, but the people of the world. Israel was to be to God what Moses is presently to God, to Israel. Israel was to be accessible to God as you and I learned it. They made their way through the wilderness in camps, did they not? And there was a tabernacle in the middle of their camp and the Shekinah glory underscored the presence of God among them. No other people had that blessed experience but national Israel. And what God is saying to them was, I I want you to be the mediator between me and the world. Not everybody's coming to God. Not everybody can. But if God has a mediation between his glory and mankind, then that mediation can take some of that glory and bring it down to mankind so that they might know where the glory is found. And this is what God is saying. You shall be unto me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. That means a set apart nation. These are the words which you shall speak unto the children of Israel. Here's that last line. I want you to get it again. God's not talking to them. Moses is. These are the words I want you to tell them. You guys capture that? Good, I got you. I want you to stay on this point right now. They have never heard from God. All they have seen are signs and wonders. They've never heard from God. He hasn't done it yet. Mount Sinai is where they will hear from God, just like Moses did. This is a big event, a big event. Under point number one, two main subpoints. so we can move on. You are a royal priesthood, a mediating nation. We agree with that, right? And you are to be a model of what? Love and what? Love and what? All right. It's very, very important. Going back to sub point A, one more text for the moment. Isaiah chapter two, verse one through four. This is what we call an eschatological promise. The prophets always envisioned God settling Israel in the land of Palestine and so beautifying Palestine and the temple that that nations from all the world would come to the temple to hear from God. They always view that because the center of worship for all eternity is Jerusalem. You guys got that? The center of worship for all eternity, is Jerusalem. And you and I know that Jerusalem takes on a greater clarification than just that limited place in Palestine. Did you guys capture that? It's important for you to know that too, so you don't get lost on the wrong Jerusalem. Because there is a wrong Jerusalem, according to Paul in Galatians 4, which is in captivity with its own children, because it's under the law and not under grace. So don't get caught up in the physical. If you get caught up in the physical, you miss the gospel. But we're dealing with a paradigm here, and a paradigm works when it stretches out to what its ultimate end is. Here it is. The word that Isaiah the son of Amos saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem, verse 2. And it shall come to pass in the last days that the mountain of the Lord's house shall be established in the top of the mountains and shall be uh, exalted above the hills and all nations shall do what? Right, may I say this? It happened first and foremost in a pre-ultimate type at Pentecost. We know that. Where the Holy Ghost was poured out and 17 nations of the world were drawn in under different dialects and languages, and they all heard the gospel in their own language. And it was from there that the message of Zion and the king of glory was to go out into all the world. And when men and women actually come to Christ, they're coming to that Zion. Did that come home? It's good for you to get, because I want to make sure you understand the difference between the type and the anti-type, the type and the reality, because the type is still present to deceive you. The type is still present to deceive the world, and it will. I'll put that to the side for now. Men who are as just as carnal as the children of Israel were in the days when Jesus came are present today deceiving the world by a false Jerusalem. So let's keep going. This is very important. Verse three. And many people shall go and say, come and let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, and he will teach us of his ways and we will walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go forth the law and the word of the Lord from where? Right, this is what we call an eschatological promise of unity of all people in one person, in one place. Makes sense, doesn't it? All right, so that's under point number to uh, point number one, a mediating nation. I want to talk briefly now about a model of love and obedience under point number one sub point B. You guys got that? A model of love and obedience. We must do this. You must capture this. This is essential. This is where it's going to hurt for a lot of you guys. Go back to the Decalogue. Go back to the 10 words. I'm going to explain why I'm calling them the 10 words in a moment, but I'm going to start in Exodus chapter 20, and we're going to look at verse 1 2 three, and four. Are we there? And God spake all these what? Debar. Ha Debarim is the Hebrew term. All these words. All God spoke was words. It's important for you to get that. All God spoke was words. Now look at verse one more carefully. This is the first time that God is speaking to the people. You guys got it? the people are hearing from God for themselves. I better walk you up to that because I don't think you get it. Chapter 19, verse 3. Notice what it says in chapter 19, verse 3. Keep up with me, please. And Moses did what? He went up to the Lord and the Lord did what? Called unto him and he began to speak to him. Chapter 19, verse 7. Notice what it says in 19, verse 7. And Moses came from where? From God and did what? Called the elders of the people and laid before their faces all these words which the Lord commanded. Y'all got that? So Moses comes up, goes up, and then he comes down. And remember, this is the, the law of organization. We learned this last week. Moses speaks to the administration. The administration takes it to the people. This is why we said we have an illusion here of a representative republic, did we not? 1 over a hundred, ten over 100, 1 over 1,000, so it expands on up. So you have local governance that's hearing from Moses to bring it to the people. Does that come home? This is called a representative republic. I could talk more about that because our constitution was set up that way in order that the government wouldn't be so far away from the people that it could hoodwink the people as it is doing today. When you have your rulers close enough, you can get on their tail when they get out of line. When you know where they live and where their kids go to school because they they go to the same school you do. And you catch them at the council and Senate on their way to the house and you say, hey, we heard about those policies you guys are drawing up. I want to know what's your mind about that because many of us have told you how we feel. Are you representing us? See, I shouldn't even get started. Y'all see what I'm getting at? Are you guys seeing what I'm getting at? But see, once they can live way up on the hill in their gated communities and drive their black cars, they can circumvent you as the people. They can go in there late at night and draw up policies that are against the mind of the people. And by the time you wake up, they've already agreed on policies contrary to your interest. Moses said, no, you got to live among the people so they can get at you. When you go to Lion. Because they're going to always do what you're saying when they're trying to get in the office. The moment they get in, they get captivated by regulators and money. Remember, this is why God says you cannot have covetous men, money will pervert judgment. All right, let me go on back. Chapter 20, verse six, chapter 20, verse six. Uh, I'm sorry, where chapter? No, go back, go back to verse seven because I got two more. We've done verse seven where Moses comes down. Look at verse 18, chapter 19, verse 18. Now, I want you to see this walk. What you don't know is from chapter 19 to 20, Moses has been going up and down, talking to God all alone. Now, notice what he says in verse 18. And Mount Sinai was altogether on the smoke because the Lord had done what? The, the Lord now has come from heaven and descended to the top of the mountain. See, God had already told Moses to go tell the people to wash their clothes. And and by the way, no sex. I need y'all focusing on me. No sex. We could talk about that at length. I'm not going to get into it. No, I need you guys to focus on me. He told them what to do. You, You guys saw it. Washing always precedes fellowship with God. Washing always precedes fellowship with God. We have been washed with the washing of the water by the word and regenerated by the Holy Ghost in order to be brought near to God in the person of Christ. But you have been washed, you have been sanctified in the name of the Lord and by the Spirit of God. Every true believer is not only washed one time in Christ, but we're continually being washed. God's not going to have fellowship with you when you're nasty, dirty, and stinky. I'm speaking metaphorically now, okay, so we just understand. See, I do not believe that in the practical sense, cleanliness is next to godliness, right? Because the Lord Jesus was kicking it with his boys and the Pharisees was complaining because they didn't wash their hands. And Jesus says, yeah, but your heart is not washed. That's the real washing that needs to be done. So the Lord don't mind me having a little dirt under my fingernails when I grab a hold to that corn, especially if I have been plowing at the field for his glory. Y'all see what I'm getting at? All right, let me keep going. Very important. So here the Lord comes down, and now I want you to see what it says in verse 24. Verse 24, Exodus 19, 24, if we have it. And the Lord said unto him, who is the him? Moses. We're still in the Old Testament. The Lord said unto Moses. So the Lord came down because Moses had come up to the mount. Please listen. This is the last time Moses and God is going to meet before God speaks for himself. Here's what he says. Away, get you down, and you shall come up, you and Aaron, with you. But let not the priest and the people break through to come up unto the Lord, lest he break forth upon them. Y'all see that? Now, I'm going to get back there in a moment because I'm headed somewhere. I'm getting ready to teach you something about God. Getting ready to teach you something about God. And God's always the same. He never changes. Okay, so like you ain't running up on God any kind of way. I don't care who you are. You're not running up on the true and the living God and all of your presumption and arrogance and foolishness. He told Moses, Moses, get on down, tell him, strap a rope around the mountain. You know how the the law enforcement will do it? They will fence off the rowdy people because God already knows these people are rowdy. He got a fence strapped down at the mountain where they are not to break through the ropes. Y'all read y'all Bible? Do y'all know that? They sitting at the rope, chomping at the bit because they want to see what Moses sees. And they don't. See, if you read your Bible carefully, I told you clarity comes from paying attention. There's a thick cloud on the mountain. A thick cloud is on the mountain. That means what Moses is doing is going into the cloud as he goes up and he's communicating with God And I already can let you know, it is Jesus that he's communicating with because no man can communicate with the father directly. It's always mediated through Jesus. Jesus is the one that comes down. Jesus came down into the mount where him and Moses are fellowshipping. Are you guys hearing me? And even Moses is not seeing Jesus yet. He's only hearing from Jesus. Now, you know, I know my Bible. Moses will see Jesus in Exodus 33 and 34, not in Exodus 19 and 20. He's up there in the cloud, walking by what? Faith Faith coming by what? And he's hearing the Lord Jesus in the thick darkness, receiving the revelation to go back down and tell the people. You got it? You got it? It's very important for you to get. Very important for you to get. Go back down there, lest the people break through and come unto the Lord, lest, lest he, the Lord, break forth upon them. You can see God is not a wimp, is he? Something for you to learn, children of uh, the living God. Now go with me to uh, Exodus chapter 20, verse 6. May the Lord make this plain upon your heart and deliver you from the fear of presumption and the pride of assumption. Because we all have it, fear and pride. Look at what the Lord says. I'm going to walk through this Would you go back with me to verse two? I'm going to walk through half of the commandments. I am the Lord, your God, which have brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. God has now begun to speak to them for himself. Did you hear that? He's speaking to them, not Moses. God is. And he says these words, I am the one that brought you out. Now, that makes sense now, doesn't it? Here's what, here's what makes sense. They saw God's hand. They observed God's power, but they never heard God's voice. Now he's speaking for himself, granting his own identity. He said, hey, I'm the one that did that. See, even back in chapter 19, verse four, it was Moses that went and told the people that you see what God did for you. In chapter 20, God is talking for himself. Now they're hearing God out of the mountain speaking for himself. Is that true? And God says, I'm the one who did it. Now, this here is what we call, this is who I am. This is who I am. I am Yahweh. I am Yahweh Elohim. I am Jehovah Elohim, okay? And now they know who he is as Moses did. Look at verse three. Verse three now gets into, you shall have no other gods before me. Now, the children of Israel are being instructed as to how they should respond to this God that delivered them. I'm going to teach you some things more deeply than that. Here is just what we call reciprocating love, which is the premise for what you heard our elders say in any relationship. When God comes and delivers you the way he delivers you, he expects you to respond in accordance. This is no argument. This is no debate. And I'm going to show you in a moment, this is not even a command. This is just a word. Did y'all hear what I just stated? See, because it's only axiomatic that if a God do what God did for over a year to bring you out of bondage and bring you to a place where he now shows his glory to you and brings you into intimate conversation and tells you we're headed to a place I have already prepared for you, that where I am, you may be all I just need you to love me back. You guys see it? Very important. Very important. Now watch this. You shall have no other gods before me. That's fair to me. Oprah didn't like it, but that's fair to me. Verse four, you shall not make unto you any graven image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. I get it. God in his ontological essence is invisible. Any form you make of God is a false facsimile of your own ideation of what you might think God is. You can't make an exact precise representation of spirit by material things. And if you should say that they are equational in their symbolism, in their analogy, you now are lowering God. This is why Israel fell prey to worshiping idols. This is why Islam as a kind of anti-Jewish constituent opposed those idols because they saw that rebellion. This is where the church has fallen prey to the same thing with pictures of Jesus. This is amazing how easily we get caught committing the same sins that Israel did. Is that true? It's amazing how we don't hear God. Right. What will you liken unto God? Or to whom will you compare him? He's infinite. He's infinite. Impenetrable, invisible, the only wise God. He can't be seen nor perceived without him revealing himself to you through some mediation. See what I'm getting at? And we never got pictures of Jesus. No Kodak cameras in the first century, sorry. No Kodak cameras in the first century. Verse verse five. You shall not bow down yourself to them nor serve them for I, the Lord, your God. I mean, what kind of God? God. Yeah, this this is right where Oprah went straight to hell. And bought into all of the other mythical pagan gods that allow wealthy people to walk around arrogantly, presuming that there are no consequences for rejecting the true and the living God. Immediately, God will blind you and leave you to rot. Where you don't understand that God, by nature, has a right to be jealous. Just like you do. Here we are walking around with all kind of jealousy uh, issues in our life because of things that we care for and and want to protect. And we will operate out of our own jealousies, won't we? We'll be jealous for our kids. We'll be jealous for this or that, for the other thing. And we have a right to. That is a protective motif. But God can't be jealous. Come on. He can be jealous for his own name, as he is. He can be jealous for his glory, as he does. And he can be jealous for his people. Does that make sense? Right. Yeah, and, and, and Nairobi, if your girl ever tells you, hey, you don't need to be jealous about her, you know, when she walks in and says, you know, all the other men in the world, I love them just like I love you. You don't have to be jealous. Did you hear what I just stated? And you can come over and borrow my friends. I'll let you borrow my friends, and you can go handle your business, and I'll see you in prison. <laughs> Did that come home? Yeah. as soon as she come and says, I love you, just like I love all the other men of the world. And you're supposed to be happy about that. Did you guys hear what I just stated? Mm-hmm. I told you it was going to hurt. I told you it was going to hurt. Your jealousy means something, doesn't it? I am a jealous God. Now, you can be mad with me, but just keep reading your Bible from Exodus all the way up to Malachi. God proved himself to be right about that, didn't he? Right. You yeah, see, jealousy will be the boundary that keep two people who are supposed to operate in covenant love from acting a fool. This is why I don't believe at all in unconditional love. I never have. And I never will. Unconditional love is like honey on your tongue. It tastes good, feels good, but it's full of strychnine. Once it goes down, it will kill you. Did you hear what I just stated? Yeah, unconditional love is oxymoronic. Love by nature is conditional. It's always conditional. Love doesn't love everything and it doesn't love everyone. If it loves everything and loves everyone, it cannot be love. Love is always has-said, and it's has-said in relationship to the object for which it is has-said. It's very. We getting ready to make it plain, because this here we are in the middle of Torah. Will you notice what? And this is Torah at large. We are dealing with the Pentateuch, but what we're dealing with right now is the Debar. We're dealing with God's word. God's having a conversation with His bride. Here's what He says. Now, this is what you can expect me to do. Are y'all ready? He says, you shall not bow down yourself to them nor serve them for I, the Lord, your God, am a what kind of God? See, now I'm back to our uh, marriage series, because one of the things I told you was that collaboration, communication is so really critical, is it not? So you meet that brother and he knows he's jealous. He got to tell you in a hurry he's jealous because to him, you're cute. And what that means is he's going to be looking at the way other brothers look at you. And if you kind of feel like you free to kind of, you know, weak at other brothers, his jealousy going to come up. Brothers, let them know early on. I'm a jealous guy. I'm a jealous guy. It's just in my nature. See what I'm getting at? Because otherwise adultery will take place. Fornication will take place. Idolatry will take. Corruption of the relationship will take place once you corrupt the relationship, the relationship is corrupted. Now here's what it says. I am a jealous God and I visit the what? Of the fathers upon the children unto the third and fourth generation of them that what? Are you ready? That's called conditional love. I want you to get that right now. This is in the middle of the 10 words. It's in the middle of the 10 words. As God is laying out who he is and how he wants to interact with his bride, he's letting her know right now, I'm going to kill up a bunch of people when they demonstrate that they hate me. Did that come home? Right. I'm I'm killing them on up. This is why the world can't stand this God of the Bible. I'm here to tell you, because the Bible tells us the wages of sin is what? And, And the soul that sinneth, it shall what? And the Bible says there's a day coming in which God will judge the whole world and they can't stand that God. See, they want a world where they can hate God and God still love them. I'm getting ready to walk you through it. So from here on out, whether you listen to your Bible or you want to hear that cognitive dissonance that you got going on in the world that lies to you about the nature of love. I want you to see it for yourself. It's very important. Notice what he says. He will visit the iniquity of the children. There it is. Please leave it there. It won't catch up in a moment. The iniquity of the fathers upon the children unto the what? Third and fourth generation, meaning it's going to happen over and over again. To the degree that we rebel against God, break his covenant, live like hell, there are going to be evil consequences falling out. Now, for people that don't understand what I'm saying, you're not even looking at your own life because your life and mine is an indication of that. When we violate God's rules and word and law, we suffer the evil of it. Please listen to verse six. Here it is. Listen to verse six. He shows mercy unto thousands of them that what? Ah, oh. oh. Verse five says he punishes those that hate him. Verse six says he shows mercy to them that what? Are you guys rational, coherent, logical beings? Verse five demonstrates God's wrath. Verse six demonstrates his what? His love. And his love is conditioned upon reciprocation. Proverbs chapter 8, 17. I'm gonna take you through a few right now so you can get it. Proverbs 8, 17. This is God speaking through the person of Jesus. And here's what he says. Listen to what he says in Proverbs 8, 17. I love them that love me. Stop right there. Take a picture of it with your cell phone. It's time to go to work. See, because you know what generation I live in, and I've been living in this generation for 43 years. I've been living in a generation that has been lied to about God in the church. A lot. And this is an attack on God's character right here. This is an attack on God's character when you make a caricature out of his love and strip his love of righteousness. When you strip God's love of justice and righteousness, you are now distorting God's love. Look at the verse for yourself. I love them that love me, and the one that seeks me early shall what? You know what he says? If you don't seek God, you're not going to find him. Did that come home? Look at verse 36. Proverbs 8 verse 36. Look at it carefully. Are you there? Watch this. But he that sinneth against me does what? He wrongs his own soul. See, so you're not going to be able to blame God when you live in rebellion against God and you hurt your own soul. Did that come home? I want you to see the last part of the verse. Look at it here. All that hate me, all that hate me love death. See it? Do you guys see it? That means the love of God, which is at the center of his nature, is that there is a distinguishing love predicated upon a reciprocation of that love that God extends. Now, if no one else in the world believes what I am sharing with you, can I tell you I know who believes it? The nation of Israel. God destroyed them over and over and over and over and over again when they violated Torah. See, you're not reading your Bible when you bind to the... God loves the nation of Israel. Ask a real Jew who actually knows Torah well. This is why in Deuteronomy chapter 28, God says, I set before you blessings and cursings. If you obey my voice, that's called a conditional clause, all these blessings will pursue you. If you disobey me and worship idols, I will destroy you. And did God do it? Over and over again. Hosea chapter nine. I want you to hear it for yourself. Start at verse 13. This is the prophet. He's almost at the end of the revelatory work of the, uh, of the prophets, okay? The uh, kitavim, the prophets. And because the prophets were lawyers for God. They would always tell Israel, hey, you got to get back to Torah. You're out of line. Remember what Torah said, if you disobey God, he's going to bring judgment. And what Israel thought was because God is patient, that God is permissive. And this is a generation that I find myself debating around the love of God. Yes, God's love is patient, but that doesn't mean God's love is is permissive. It doesn't mean that God's love is indifferent. It doesn't mean that God's love doesn't care what you do. He's just giving you time to repent. Does that make some sense? Don't equate patience with unconditionality. Am I helping you? This is so important in the day in which we live. God will have every right to send anyone and everyone to hell who rejects him. Notice what he says. Ephraim, as I saw Tyrus, is planted in a pleasant place. This is the prophet saying, God blessed Ephraim planet in a pleasant place. But watch this. But Ephraim, you know what a but is? It's a contrasting conjunction. But Ephraim shall bring forth children to the what? Ah, is the prophet just going off and waxing eloquent because he's mad? No, he's interpreting Torah. He's taking the Deuteronomic code and letting you know that the code says if you rebel against God, he will give your children over to the sword. Jesus told you that in Matthew 24. Woe unto them that give suck in those days and that are with child. Because in their rebellion against the true and the living God, when Jesus was the last prophet and warned them about idolatry and the coming of the Roman Empire because they had rejected him. Remember what he said? Because you have rejected me, your house is left to you, what? Desolate. That's the Deuteronomic Code. That's chapter 28. That's Leviticus 26. All Jesus and all the faithful prophets ever did was tell Israel what the covenant consisted of. Hey, you signed the covenant, because in a minute you and I are going to hear them say, Moses, we'll do whatever God says. See, that's when we go, I do, I will. See what I'm getting at? God's serious, isn't he? Watch this, saints. Here It is. Watch this. Ephraim, as I saw Tyrus, is planted in a pleasant place, but Ephraim shall bring forth his children to the murders. That scares me to death. That scares me to death because you and I never know what dispensation we're in in terms of our culture, even though we're proliferating children, and we always presuppose them as a blessing, do we not? But what if God's hand is not on them? What if his grace is not in their life? We know that we're all vipers coming from the womb as soon as we be born speaking lies. We're snakes and vipers. We'll devour each other quickly if God doesn't restrain us. Job made it plain. The children of the wicked are the sword of the Lord. Ah, Now I'm pressing into another idol of the 21st and 20th century, false American Christianity. Do you know what that idol is? That idol is, is that we are all basically good. You're not good. You're rotten to the core. Over against God, you're rotten to the core. Now, you, you look good over against PJ, because I'm, 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 I'm jacked up. You look good. You might get in if God was weighing out your righteousness versus mine. But the likelihood is both of us are going to hell based on our own righteousness. See, your Bible tells you we are born and conceived in sin. And iniquity, we were conceived. And there's none that's good, no, not one. There's none that seeks after God. There's none that understands. There's none that cares. We come out of the womb in an aversion to God. We want our own way. We got that from Mama Eve and Daddy Adam. Are you guys keeping up with me? Right, again, this doctrine is not taught. And because it's not taught, the church bought into the era of wokeness. See, when you don't teach that all men are equal... (laughs) equal sinners, under the wrath of God, on their way to hell, then you can buy into false notions like black people are better than white people or white people are better than black people, which white people did and now black people are doing it because you buy into the woke doctrine of Marxism. It is a eugenics system of ethnic hierarchy. That's exactly right. And you feel good about hating on white folks. The problem is your hating white folks. is not going to get you into heaven. Because white folks didn't figure that out too. A whole lot of them thought they were going to heaven by hating on black folks in the name of Jesus. No, they got to the pearly gates and Peter didn't even show up. Peter didn't even show up. He stayed in the back eating Skittles and no, nah, these, nah, these folk ain't going. These, this is the, y'all got the wrong heaven. See, the enemy loves to distract us from the truth. And the only way you can love like Christ loves is to understand that everybody is undeserving of love. And therefore the love that is offered is always offered to undeserving people. This is a sinner's gospel. This is a sinner's gospel. The only person going to heaven is a sinner who's redeemed by the grace of God, who admits his rebellion and disobedience and recognizes it's me, oh Lord, it's me, oh Lord, standing in the need of prayer. And that publican went down to his house justified. And the Pharisee that pumped his chest up talking about how good he was went to hell. That's called conditional love. Did y'all get that? Listen to what Hosea says, verse 14. Give them, O oh Lord. What will you give them? A miscarrying womb and dry breast. All right, so I got you guys for another 30 minutes. All it is is the covenant of Torah, chapter 28 through 32, Leviticus 26 through 29, where God says, I will not open the womb. And if the womb opens, the child will die. He will not let Israel expand as a nation. He will not let them grow because God is into growth. Did that make some sense? He will not let them grow because he already knows that they will not do what Abraham did, which God says, I know Abraham. He's my friend. He will teach his children right. Therefore, I will expand him. God sees us way before we act. And it's his mercy not to let us have children. If he knows we're going to let our children live like hell. Did that make some sense? Right. This here is what we call the reciprocation of God's law. He sees the end from the beginning, doesn't he? So he'll know. This is why I often tell people, don't judge God by your standards. If he doesn't give you kids, after a while, figure it out. He knows what you can stand and what you cannot stand. And what good is it for you to bring children in the world and you're not ready to die for them when it comes to the truth? because we already see the government owns them from the time they come out of the womb. They stamp your children with a social security number and they set them up for 70 years of labor. And they fight like hell to rip your kids out of your hands and own them, first transforming their little minds through public school that the parent is the main cause of all their ills. This is what I mean by the woke doctrine. That's Marxism. Marxism knows you got to destroy the main hub of human continuity and the main hub of human continuity is the family. God didn't start this world with a government. He started it with a family. Amen. Amen, Today, we don't need governments. We need families. Yeah. This is why I said to you in closing yesterday, the women are going to deliver us. They're going to deliver us. If, they, if we get delivered from this judgment that God is pouring on my nation, which I can see very clearly, it's because women are going to stand up and take their proper role under God. Because our men are already enslaved psychologically and on so many levels sociologically. Women have to become solid again and make sure they put the proper boundaries around relationship between them and men, and love their children like a mother bear would destroy everything on the planet for. It's going to be women. That's why we have in the book of Revelation, chapter 12, verse 1, 2, and 3, and I saw a woman clothed in the sun with the moon around her, under her feet, and 12 stars of a crown on her head. And she was full with child, ready to be delivered, meaning that the woman becomes a vehicle by which the Savior comes into the world to redeem humanity from its ruin. That's the eschatological outcome of the book of Revelation because you got two women. You got the whore and then you got the bride of Christ. And when the smoke clears, the bride of Christ is the one that stands. Right now. Did that come home? Right? Sisters got to do the right thing because brothers is stupid today. Verse 15. All their wickedness is in Gilgal. That's the idolatrous temple. All their wickedness is in Gilgal. That's the idolatrous temple. Now read this next clause. For there, in their idolatry, I hated them. That's God talking about Israel. That's the God that most people say, God just loves you unconditionally. Does that look like unconditionality? It don't look nothing like unconditionality. God says, "There, I hated them. Do y'all see that? Keep going, keep reading. For the wickedness of their doings, I will drive them out of my what? His house is the land. It's the land of Israel. I keep telling you that's where we're going with this bride right now. We're, We're here. This is about 600 years before Christ. Israel goes into the promised land somewhere around um, 1500 BC, okay? So this is six. They were in the promised land for over 900 years. Now God has begun to send them out. He did it with the Assyrians, right? 610 BC. Then he did it with the Babylonians, right? 587 BC. He says, I'm divorcing you because of your rebellion. Did that make some sense? All right, so he brought them in but he also sent them out just like his covenant law said. Y'all got that? This is where I teach. This is where I teach. Divorce has a purpose for people who don't get it. And I don't care. Divorce has a purpose because if God didn't give certain people a bill of divorcement, he'd just have to kill them. He'd have to kill them. He'd have to kill them. The bill of divorcement breaks it up so that some of them can repent and be brought in through Jesus. Did you hear what I just said? Well, I, I, I can't understand why people don't understand that divorce has a mechanism that's an alternative to the consequences of sin. Don't you know Torah teaches that adultery is to be punished with death? I love Paul. Paul said, hey, all you guys that want to be under the law, have you ever heard the law? Uh, hold on. Have you ever heard that thing? One sin will send you to hell. Who in the world wants to be under the law as a covenant? Except for ignorant people who think they can keep it. So God gave a bill of divorcement to Israel so he wouldn't utterly destroy them all. He would save a remnant and they would be brought in through Jesus, the new covenant. Did that make some sense? I guess I got to go this way because that's Jeremiah 3. Return unto me, return unto me, you backsliding horror. I know it hurt, but that, you know, he said, I'm going to give you another chance. You backsliding horror. She didn't want to own that. So God says, You're going to die. Now the elect understood it. Jeremiah understood it. The minor prophets understood it. God understood what he did when he sent Israel out of his house. I mean, uh, the prophets understood. They knew they had to hang out for 70 years in Babylon. And then they would gradually start being brought back in. That was a divorce. Do you understand that? And the renewal of the covenant comes in the person of Jesus. He's the other husband. The law has to die in Christ so that we can be married to another, a greater, a better, who can renew us and bear fruit through us. This is true. This is true. God is more than a God of second chances. Listen to what he says. For the wickedness of their doings, I will drive them out of my house. Here it is. Here's so much for your unconditional love. And I will love them no more. See, some of you guys never saw that verse. Raise your hand if you never saw that verse in your life. And the reason you never saw it because you don't listen to me. Somebody tell them, haven't I quoted this verse before? Raise your hand if you've heard me quote this verse before, about 10 people. Um, I've I've taught this many, many times. I've taught it many times. See, it's one thing for you to formulate your own notions about God. It's another thing to read his word explicitly and let his word speak plainly to you. See, in our our nation is full of postmodern fantasy people, even in the church. I debate with them all the time. Even some of my, my, my dear beloved brothers in our church, they love to argue with me. I just don't see it that way. And I go, I get it. You don't see it. You can't argue with a person that doesn't see it. Like there are people who are not going to see this. I don't agree with Pastor Jesse. It has nothing to do with me. It has everything to do with whether or not you're going to believe what the Bible says. I just gave you guys five verses and I can give you more. I'm not going to do it because I want to go on and get through with my message. I'm just letting you know that the notion of an unconditional love is nowhere found in the Bible. In fact, it's militated against. And you cannot understand God in the way he acts with all of these conditionalities. And you have some unconditional principle that overrides it. At that point you have set aside the true God and bought into a false God. And now you got to do hopscotch with the scriptures and pretend you love the Bible, but you're jumping over Deuteronomy and you're jumping over Leviticus and you're jumping over Hosea and you're jumping over Amos because I can take you to Amos now. By the time you're done, you're a frog. You're pretending you know your Bible you're pretending you know your Bible. You do not know your Bible. You do not know your Bible. Am I making some sense? You don't know your Bible. You've been, you've been playing church a long time. And I'm sorry, saints, I have not. That's why I labor with you week in and week out. And I'm tedious with trying to help you think correctly and think broadly. All right. Let's go to point number two then. Point, uh, go back to point number one, sub point B. A model of love and obedience. The model of love and obedience is what God said very plainly. He says, you are to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Your neighbor as yourself. Is that right? I love that. Point number two. I am the Lord your God. We see that clearly, do we not? Subpoints A and B says, this is seen by the revelation of his work. And then it's seen by the revelation of his what? His word. Now, what God is saying in Exodus, Moses repeats in Deuteronomy chapter 4. Look at verses 11 through 13. I just want you to hear something that Israel was tautologically taught over and over. And I want you to get it. On that day when God spoke to Israel on Mount Sinai, and according to Exodus 19, 1, it was in the third month that they came out of the wilderness. I want you to hear me. Here's what God said. God said, I want to make sure you understand. On that day when you and I communicated, you saw no face. You don't get to tell anyone you saw me. You heard me. Did y'all get that? Faith comes by hearing. It's not by seeing. God was never seen. He was only heard. Israel was told that over and over again. You had a God that came to you in words. See what I'm getting at? Listen to it. And you came near and you stood under the mountain and the mountain burned with fire unto the midst of heaven with dark clouds and thick darkness. God made that thing dark, didn't he? Look at the next verse. And the Lord did what? Spake unto you out of the midst of the fire. Just like he did Moses. Why? Because he's bringing the children of Israel into the same mediation role that he did with Moses. He started with Moses. All Moses heard was a voice out of the fire in the burning bush. Now Israel is entering into that mediatorial work. They're hearing the voice of God out of the fire. And notice what it says. But you saw no similitude. Only you heard a voice. See that? This is true for you and me too. The only thing you and I have ever heard is a voice. We've never seen God's face. We haven't even seen Jesus's face. We walk by faith just like they did. If in fact God's voice is heard in your heart, you are walking by faith, not by sight. That's how God works. See, he's calling you and I to trust him, though we don't see him. He's calling us to recognize that he is providentially so powerful in his workings in in our life. We should be able to recognize God's hand in our life. We should be able to go. God has been good today. He woke me up in my right mind. I'm still clear. I'm still clear. And my heart is not so wavery that I don't know to get up and come on that day. That is a similitude of the Sabbath and give God glory for all the week where God allowed me to work and pay my bills and engage men and women and the dignity of my calling and the dignity of my manhood, the dignity of my womanhood, one day for a couple of hours, I'm going to give God glory for keeping me, for keeping me. God owns everything, all the cattle on a thousand hills. He's not begging. He's looking for people who love him. Our God is spirit. He is to be worshiped in spirit and truth. for such the father seeks to worship him. He's never begging you to worship him. God will and the whole of the heavens of the angels will rejoice with one sinner that gives God glory. One sinner that says, thank you, Lord. All of heaven will rejoice. This is the God of the Bible because he always walks in his own sufficiency. So you see it there. Point number three, point number three in our outline. So we can, I'm going to turn around in a second. Point number three, these are the what? Ten words of the covenant. These are the ten words of the covenant. So very important for you to get it. So point A. we have what is called in the New Testament, a summation of these ten words. Jesus said in Matthew chapter 22, verse 37, learn this, I'm going to teach you something about the reduction principle of God for um, slow people like you and me. So you need to capture. it. It's called the reduction principle of God for slow people like you and me. Just just grab it because you're slow. I'm just sorry, you're slow. You and I are slow. And and we better hurry up and catch up because artificial intelligence is about to dupe us really bad. All right. So Jesus said unto him, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart's and with all your soul, and with all your mind, right? That is a vertical commitment to God. Verse 38, notice what it says in verse 38. Um, This is the first and great commandment. What is the second commandment? And love your neighbor as yourself. Now, if you want to get an expansion on Exodus 20, go to Leviticus 19 in your own time. It gives you a fuller development of Exodus 20. In Exodus 20, we have what are called the 10 words, okay? And those 10 words are uh, often said to be 10 commandments. Look at Exodus 34, verse 27 and 28. I want to develop this and keep moving. Exodus 34 is where Moses now is actually writing out the 10 commandments. And here's what he says. And the Lord said unto Moses, write thou these what? Word. His words, bar." for after the tenor of these words, have I made a what? Covenant with thee and with Israel. Very important to get. So what we're dealing with in Exodus 20 is a covenant relationship. It is a binding covenant with stipulations of promises, blessings, and cursings that is to be agreed upon by two parties. This is what we call a bi-party covenant. Did y'all get that? Covenant is the same thing as in a marriage where you go, I do, and she goes, I do, and where you go, I will, and where he goes, what? I will. It is a bipartisan covenant. Verse 28. Listen to verse 28. And he was there with the Lord. Who was there? For 40 days and 40 nights like Jesus was, right? He he did neither eat bread nor drink water. Watch this. And he wrote upon the tables, the what? The words of the covenant, the Ten Commandments. Now you see that little word commandment there? That's not even literally the word commandment. That is the word words again. The translators translated the commandment because they wanted us to infer that the words that God gave us are to be understood as commandments. But in reality, back in Exodus chapter 20, the emphasis is on this. And I want you to get it. God spoke his word to us. This is why Jesus said in Matthew chapter four, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. I want you to get that. We can easily infer that the Dabar is also the Shafat, or what we would call the mispot, the, the commandments and instructions of God. We can easily infer that the totality of the Torah are the instructions of God, but they come in the form of Dabar, in the form of words, and those words become Shafat, or what we call instructions and law. Does that make some sense? But there is no instruction where there is no word. And the great event on that day was that God spoke to them in words they could understand. And he does it to you and me too today. This is why we say in the beginning of the New Testament gospel, in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. And there was nothing that was made that the word did not make. God has spoken. And he's spoken so clear. All we got to do is sit there and endure that word and it will make sense to us. He does love us enough to make sure he's not speaking in tongues without interpretation. So it's important for you to get that. Sub point, uh, point number three, there are four sub points I want to capture. A summation of the law. He breaks them down into two, what we call two tablets. The first tablet is to God. The second tablet is to man. Y'all got that? Y'all heard that before, right? So, here the 10 words you just saw them in Exodus 34 are broken down into two tablets and they're given by one God. Did you get it? The 10 words are broken down into two tablets and given by what? Here, the Lord your God is one Lord, Him alone shall you worship. So, the one true and the living God who is the unity of purpose and harmony and reality for us, gave us 10 words that can be extrapolated out to an infinite set of instructions. But they're simple in their compilation. This is why we call them a summary of the covenant, because when you break down the two, you discover that God reveals who he is, demands that he be worshiped for who he is, and then tells us that we are to worship him a certain kind of way. And after he lays out who he is and how we worship him, he says, this is how you are to live with one another. You shall not kill. You shall not steal. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not covet your neighbor's house, your neighbor's ass, your neighbor's ox, or anything that is your neighbor's I am your God. I'm able to provide for you. You don't need to steal anything from anybody. You don't need to covet another man's wife. I'll give you a wife. I'll give you children. I'll give you health. I'll give you wealth. I'll give you power. I'll give you authority. I'll give you purpose in this world. So long as God is your central organizing principle. Now, this is the reason why America's is going, in, going to hell in a handbasket. I'm almost through. There's a reason why America's going to hell in a handbasket is because they are intentionally trying to prove God wrong. They're intentionally trying to prove God wrong. I think I'm going to come back and unpack those 10 for you guys because there's so many stupid arguments that are going on in the church around them. Now, the reason why I'm telling you that they're not 10 commandments, they're 10 words, because when you read the Decalogue carefully, you'll find that if you try to identify any of them as commandments, there's only about nine of them. Do you understand that? And now people are arguing around. There's only nine commandments, okay? Don't make any idols, right? Don't bow down and worship them, right? You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. That's three. What's the fourth commandment? Honor the Sabbath day. Then you got five more. How many is five times four? I know you went to government school. I'll help you. There's nine. So God lied, didn't he? He lied. No, he didn't lie. You got 10 words there, not commandments. There are thousands of commandments in your Bible. God gave you 10 words and it started with a revelation of himself. A revelation of himself. I am the Lord your God. I'm the one that brought you out. That's the first word. And the other nine are attached to it. You don't get to misrepresent me. And you don't get the hate on your family or your neighbor. And I'm the God that will keep you in all of that. Does that make sense? Right. Very good. Very good. Now, let me, let me help us to understand uh, in this sub point uh, sub-point C. But I'm going to read this through. The summation is to a seriously breached. And all of this is seriously breached by every man. That's sub point B. I already made that point. Do you see all those verses? John 17, 9. Acts 7, 52 and 53, Romans 3, 9 through 11, Ecclesiastes seven twenty. If you know your Bible already made that argument, you know what the argument is? God gave us the law and none of us kept it. That's literally what Jesus said in John 7. Stephen arguing with the Sanhedrin says, hey, God gave us the law and none of us kept it. And they killed Stephen for it. Paul said it in Galatians chapter 2, verse 16. It is evident by the works of the law, no flesh shall be justified in God's sight for all have sinned and come short of God's glory. Did y'all hear that? Over and over again, Ecclesiastes 7.20, there's not a just man upon the earth that doeth good. No, not one. You know what that means? Nobody but Jesus. Nobody but Jesus. Nobody but Jesus. So when you turn that decalogue around and you go back, I mean, this outline around and you go back to point, number one, you are a royal priesthood only because we have one mediator between man and God, and that is the man Christ Jesus. And that mediator ever lives to make intercession for those who come to him by faith. In other words, you can't be a priest unless you're part of the priesthood of Christ Unless you believe on the Lord Jesus Christ as your savior, then you can be part of the priesthood. So point, uh, point number two, I am the Lord, your God. We have argued forever and a day that Jesus is the revelation of the invisible God. If you don't see Jesus, you can't see the father. This is why it was Thomas in, J- in John chapter 21 who said, when Jesus says, stick your hand in my side stick them in my hands and be (laughs) believing. Immediately Thomas said, my Lord and my God. Jesus is the revelation of the invisible God. He's the second person. He's the cause by which everything is made. And where you and I fail to recognize him as God, we are blinded to the father and we don't have the spirit. Did that make some sense? So just as I told you this, I'm going to prove this later on. Some of you guys already know it. That coming down from heaven to the top of Mount Sinai, that was Jesus. Moses met Jesus. Did y'all hear what I just said? Moses had fellowship with Jesus. This is why Jesus could say in John chapter five and six, Moses spoke of me. You are You are searching the scriptures and you think in them you have eternal life. You hear all kind of people talking about how they know God because they study the Bible. But when you don't see Jesus in the Bible, it means you don't have the third person. The Holy Ghost helps you see Jesus and Jesus helps you see the Father. And no one's coming to the Father but by him. And Christ has to give you that revelation. That's the battle I'm fighting in this world. And you are too. And they're trying to beat us back and tell us that Jesus is not needed. That's a lie from hell. You cannot know God in any saving way apart from the Son. Did that make some sense? And then the final, final third point as I close. These are the ten words of the commandment. I love this. The Bible's very clear. There's no one in this world that has kept God's law but Jesus. Jesus said, "I." He said in John chapter eight. He says, "Which of you can convince me of sin?" He's talking to the rulers. I've lived among you for thirty some odd years. I ate your food. I drank. I hung out. I taught. I preached. Which one of you can convince me of sin? And all their mouths were shut. Do you know why? Because he did know sin. He knew no sin. This is what John is saying. Paul says, in him was no sin at all. John the Baptist called him the sinless lamb of God. When Pilate killed him, Pilate says, I find no fault in him at all. So if y'all gonna kill him, you guys are killing an innocent man. Did y'all get that? And God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God in Him. So as we're reading the Ten Commandments or the Ten Words, what we know is those Ten Words were designed to drive you somewhere. That's the way Paul put it. It's a schoolmaster to help you understand how righteous God is and how sinful we are Apart from the grace of God. And even, ladies and gentlemen, may I say this as I get ready to close. That you and I recognize we are sinners does not mean that you and I should continue living like hell. Shall we sin that grace may abound? God forbid. That's the reason he gives you his spirit. So that his grace can work in you to at least do a reasonably good job of loving him. And I mean as reasonable enough for his glory to be reflected in your submission and obedience. But it's not so much as you to end up stealing Christ's glory and becoming a false savior to other people. Don't ever lie to people. Don't ever lie to people and tell them that you're all that. Tell them all. He's all that. And I'm all that in him. And I really do love him. I really do love him. Now, love is not a false fabrication and and, and figment of our imagination. When the Holy Ghost shows up in your life, he pours the love of God into your soul. And your soul constantly says, oh, how I love Jesus. Oh, how I love Jesus. And daily we live with loving and longing to be like him, even though now we are far from it. But we are not what we used to be. We are not what we used to be. And God can take this little flickering light of ours. It's a little flickering light. Every believer is a little flickering light. And he can light up a whole room of darkness With that little flickering light, this little light of mine, I'm going to let it shine, let it shine, let it shine, let it shine. Holy Ghost, keep pouring oil in. Pour the oil in, Holy Ghost. Amen, 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 amen. All right.